Dear friends, children are welcome to go out this morning with Mother Wendy and little ones to go with Miss Cheryl. And we welcome Rissy to be our preacher this morning. Welcome. Morning. Thanks so much. Would you like me to pray for you or you all said you like to pray first? I How can open. That's fine. What, which one? I can do it. You yeah. do it. Awesome. All right. Super. All right. Let's open in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this time that we can be together on just such a beautiful and wonderful day to share in your spirit and in your word. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be honorable and pleasing to you. Amen. So good morning. It's always wonderful to get to share this space in this time with you all. Uh, as I started working on this sermon about the Holy Spirit, because we've gone through God the Father and God the Son, and now we're on God the Holy Spirit, I was reminded of a story that I hadn't thought of in quite some time, where my brother and I, growing up in Maine, went to a very tiny Christian school. So the whole shebang, like white box church, two modular buildings, eight to 12 people in a classroom, tiny, tiny, right? And I must have been around sixth grade that an incredibly earnest young man kindly like informed me that that meant I wasn't really saved and I didn't have the Holy Spirit in me. Now, thankfully, I have very proactive parents around these sort of concerns, so this was not a surprise or very upsetting. I knew this was floating in the ether, and so it wasn't a big deal. But I do think it's stories like this that can often make it really hard for us to kind of grasp and wrap our heads and our hearts around the person of the Holy Spirit, right? Like, it doesn't take long to look around and see the two extremes, right? So you've got, on one side, the Holy Spirit can feel sort of over-sensationalized or over-sentimentalized, right? Something that's supposed to be comforting and empowering can feel almost shaming or manipulative, but then the pendulum can go back the other way, and it almost seems like the Holy Spirit gets kind of put out to pasture because it's like, oh, that's, that's very silly, and we don't need that here. And then you start to kind of go through scripture, and it's like, oh, I kind of see how this happened, right? Because even in imagery and function in scripture, the Holy Spirit is kind of all over the place, right? So the Holy Spirit shows up in imagery as a dove, as light, as breath, as spirit, as right tongues of fire above people's heads. It makes people prophesy, or it makes them speak in different languages, all over the place, right? And then it's said to be comforting, right? And nurturing, but then it's also condemning and convicting and advocating. It's all over the map. So how do we relate to at worst, misused. Well, there is story after story that we could look at throughout the Old and the New Testament to kind of start to grapple with this. But because it is just a thrilling day where we have the Feast of the Presentation and we have a baptism, and I'm so excited, um, we're going to look at two stories from the passage on the presentation, right? And so what these passages are going to help us to do is to see how a relational connection with the Holy Spirit manifests in these two people's lives for the furthering of the gospel and the service of others in two really unique and powerful ways. So let's set the stage a little bit. So 
the Feast of the Presentation. This is a very traditional, right, Jewish practice where firstborn males are dedicated to the service of God at around the 40-day mark, right? So now this was started because uh, it was a tribute to God to honor the fact that the Israelites, firstborn males, were spared during the exodus in Egypt, right? So we see it in the Old Testament with Hannah presenting Samuel, and now we see it here. Now there's a really, really powerful parallel that's happening, right? So just as the Israelites' firstborn males were spared in Egypt, so too Jesus was spared just weeks earlier when Herod called for the slaughtering of the innocents, right? And all the males under two were killed, but Jesus was spared. So we have this really powerful moment happening But as powerful as it was, I really want to note, too, this wasn't particularly special, right? There wasn't, like, at the temple, this is the firstborn son presentation day, and everyone showed up, and it was only once a year. This would happen any day at the temple, because it was just done postpartum 40 days, right? So this was a very normal, traditional practice. But in the midst of something so normal but wonderful, we see the Spirit working to make something miraculous. Now, there's a fun side note here that's completely off book, but I really love it, which is in the passage, it talks about how they had to have two birds, right? Two turtle doves or two pigeons. We don't know from the text where chronologically the prophecies happened versus the bird slaughtering. So how delightful to picture. Mary, little baby Jesus, long-suffering Joseph this whole time is managing two birds, right? Maybe in like a little thing that he's carrying, but maybe just like bundled or trussed, and he's got like one under each arm, and they're like flapping and squawking the whole time. Joseph, two birds. So we don't know, but it's a really fun thing to think about as we go through this. All right, so our first encounter on this ordinary day is with Simeon. So Simeon comes in, and the text gives us three mentions of how Simeon is related to the Holy Spirit, right? So it says the Holy Spirit is on him, is revealed to him, and guided him. So the Holy Spirit is on him. He is righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit reveals to him that you will not die until you see the consolation of Israel, right? So this is what he knows. This is what has been revealed to him. And then the Holy Spirit guided him, again, on a normal day to go to the temple. But it's not just that the days had to align for Anna and Simeon to meet Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. They also had to find him, which was no small feat. So the temple in Jerusalem in Herod's day was a sprawling 35 acres. It was huge, right? So this would be two of the whole Gillette Stadium campuses or 11 TD Gardens end-to-end, right? Massive temple. So in the midst of the hustle and bustle of this temple, these two elderly folks happen to find and prophesy over one little baby that he's the Messiah, It's just incredible. It is just incredible on an ordinary day. 
couple things about Simeon we don't know. We don't actually know how old he is, right? We don't know when in his life he received this prophecy, and we don't know what his quality of life was throughout it. The promise of a Messiah is ancient. So the idea of being told you're not going to die until this Messiah shows up could have been quite the heavy mantle, right? Because this, like, he didn't know. So we don't know what life has been like for him as he's been patient and waiting. So when you read through the passage and you see that it says that then he felt he could finally die, this is not a, like a flippant giving up. And he's like, oh, thank goodness, I can die now, right? What this is, is a beautiful release of service. Simeon has been a faithful watchman for the Messiah for potentially decades of his life. And now his service is fulfilled. He has completed his task. He has seen the Messiah come. He has seen salvation with his own eyes. He has fulfilled his purpose so he can be at peace. But before he can be at peace, he gives two prophecies, or a prophecy in two parts, either way. The first part, right, is in the form of like a song. And we see this throughout the birth narrative, throughout scripture. And in this song, he talks about how salvation has come through Jesus through, for the Jew and the Gentile, right? Now, this is a big theme in Luke. You'll see this throughout his book, that salvation coming through the person of Jesus for Jew and Gentile has been the purpose of God's big story this whole time, right? So this is a big thing that Luke drives home. And what's Incredible, too, is in Simeon's prophecy, he echoes a lot of the language you read in Isaiah 40 to 66. So what he was saying, anyone hearing it would have been like, oh, we know that. We've heard that. We know this language. So it's a very powerful proclamation that salvation has come and is here. But it's actually Simeon's second sort of aside prophecy that just really gets me. Now, this second one is kind of directed not as big proclamation, but almost an aside directly to Mary and Jesus. Now, it could be that this one strikes me particularly because of my own pregnant state. I am pregnant, if that hasn't like made itself evident at this stage of the game. Um, but, so Simeon says to Mary, that a sword is going to pierce her own soul. Now, let's take a minute and remember where we're at here, right? So Mary is 40 days postpartum. Mary is barely healed from giving birth in a stable. And she just walked about five miles to get from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Flip that, Bethlehem to Jerusalem, right? And these laws of purification, we know it's 40 days because... She had a firstborn son. With sons, you're unclean for seven days, then you're in purification for 33, and then you're purified at the temple. If you have a girl, you double all those numbers, 14, 66, 80, which is a really interesting fact, but a whole separate sermon. So we're just going to put it over there. Um, so she's 40 days. She just did this walking. And Simeon says to her, that your son, this beautiful baby, will be opposed 
and you too will suffer. And the only thing I can think of would be this like dawning or sinking realization from her of, but haven't I done enough? Hasn't it been good? I mean, I get the whole prophesying thing. We've had that a couple times. But, but the angels and the fear and the immaculate conception and the threat of social isolation and death and rejection and the realities of birth and pregnancy and postpartum, and I'm here. But it's not done, is it? Right? Just this incredible, powerful moment that she's seeing that the story isn't done. It's not done for her, and it's not done for this 40-day-old baby, that this suffering will continue. And this is one of the hard notes about the Holy Spirit from Simeon's prophecy, is that often the Holy Spirit does not work for our own comfort and our own well-being. And in fact, at times, the work of the Spirit is our suffering for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of others. And that's what Mary would be sitting in, in this moment. And I just think it's an incredible space to get to share with her. So after Simeon, Anna comes next. Now, you might remember from when we talked about the stoning, or potential stoning, of the adulterous woman, how many witnesses do we need in Jewish law? Two, right? We need two. Luke is very attuned to this, right? And especially throughout Jesus's birth narrative, we get a lot of these male-female witness couplings. So we get Zechariah and Mary, and we get Zechariah and Elizabeth, and now we have Anna and Simeon. Because he really wants this to stick. Now, what I love about this is both Simeon and Anna's proclamations and prophecies are completely coordinated, completely in harmony with each other and with the full body of the gospel, but they are also completely unique in the way they're done which again is often how the spirit meets us where we are. So where Simeon is really prophecy heavy, we get his full text, but really biography light, it flips with Anna. With Anna, we get big biography. We really don't get actually what she said in her prophecy, so it's flipped. So it starts off that she is a prophetess. Now, she, Anna, is the only named prophetess in the whole of the New Testament, just her, right? It is just her. Jesus is the only male prophet in all of Luke. So they're the only two in this book. And she's the only one in the whole New Testament. And for the Old Testament, right, she runs in the line of Deborah, Holda, Miriam, right? There's lots more named in the Old Testament. But for the New Testament, it's just Anna. Then it says her father is Phanuel, Now, this is really interesting, right? So, Phanuel means face of God. And it was common in the Old Testament that prophets would be defined as those who have seen the face of God. So, then here is Anna, right? Who she has come face to face, right? And here, Panim to Panim, Phanuel, with the Messiah. And then it says she is from the tribe of Asher, Now, it's actually really rare in the New Testament that we get a tribal listing, so it's interesting. And then you you all remember, right, when Moses said that one time that in the tribe of Asher, your strength will equal your days. And then the next fact we get about Anna is she's at least 84 
but potentially closer to 105. So there's like a little bit of split scholarship at this point because it could either be saying she's been a widow for 84 years or she's 84 years old. The scales tip a little bit more to the side that she's been a widow for 84 years, which means she's clocking in at like 105 years old. So if her strength is equal to her days, we are looking at an incredibly strong woman, right? And then it says she is devout and practices fasting and prayer. And this is another very traditional phrasing from the Old Testament just to identify this is a prophet. This is a devout person. So what Luke potentially is sort of doing here is creating this giant neon billboard sign saying, listen to her, right? Like, take her seriously. There is no reason you should not listen. Look at all this data, okay? And while her message is very similar to Simeon, her response actually reminds us a little bit more of the shepherds at Advent because it says what she does is give thanks and preaches to those in the temple waiting on the redemption of Jerusalem. And remember, Simeon was waiting for the same thing. So this idea of waiting on the redemption and the consolation of Israel kind of bookends our whole story together. So what we have here is Simeon functioning as the watchman, right? He has been standing guard and alert, waiting for the Messiah. So we have Simeon as watchman, and then we have Anna as prophet and evangelist, right? What Simeon points to and says, this is it. We have the Messiah. The time is now. The kingdom is here. Anna then lives out as an example and witness that this is a new time. This is a new time where the word of women and shepherds matters. This is a new time where where Jew and Gentile are both saved. This is found. We have the watchman of the presentation of a teeny tiny baby. So what we have is an amazing moment to see with these two people living lives of patient hope, marked by waiting and connection to the Holy Spirit, being guided by the Holy Spirit to prophesy, not for themselves, but for the sake of others and for the kingdom. So what does that mean for us as we try to relate to the Spirit in our own living and waking, normal and ordinary lives? Right, and I think there's kind of three three pieces, and one is patience. Simeon and Anna were both advanced in age, and Simeon especially probably had to be waiting and sitting on this. And I would almost guarantee you, both of them in their lives would have had moments where they thought, I don't know if I can do this, (laughs) right? Like, it has been a long time that we are waiting. It has been a long time, widowed and hanging out at the temple. Like, it has been a minute. Patient hope. The Holy Spirit is not bound by our own sense of time and hurry. And so when it starts to feel that things are dragging, when it starts to feel you must be off track, it is just taking too long. (sighs) Patience, and the Spirit is with you. That the Spirit often works for the sake of others and not for ourselves. 
it's very easy to feel in moments of suffering or feeling lost that we're off track. We've messed up. The spirit must not be with me. I am suffering. This is bad. And the spirit does comfort. The spirit does do amazing things in our own lives, in our own hearts, but also the spirit works for others and for the kingdom. So in moments of hurt, in moments of suffering, of confusion, to know you are not alone. You have not stepped off track. You are not lost. That the spirit is with you in that suffering, is with you in that space. And it's a relationship, right? Both Simeon and Anna, right? Devout, righteous, fasting, prayer. This is a relational, attuned connection to the Holy Spirit. Now, as a church community, we've been able to do some really amazing work together on rule of life and spiritual disciplines. And this is why, right? It's moments like these. It's so we can be attuned and attached and connected to the Holy Spirit So our ordinary moments and ordinary days can have marvelous work done in them, can have incredible moments that we could have never anticipated. So to take the time to be connected so that we too, like Mary and Joseph and Jesus and the two birds, we can marvel. We can marvel at what the Spirit can do through our lives and the lives of others. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we take a moment this morning just to sit and to be in your presence, I pray that you can fill us with a great awareness and confidence in the Holy Spirit to seek that connection, to seek that relational belonging, and to know that you can turn our most ordinary moments into the most extraordinary. 